Turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Job. Job, the second chapter. And as you turn there, uh, it's been a bit over, been a, around a month since we were in Job chapter 1. It's never my intention that this would be a series, and I don't suppose it will end up being a series. But it seemed good to uh, consider Job, the second chapter, uh, this day as I'm preparing, continuing to prepare for future sermons in our series on the family. And uh, as you turn there in God's holy word, uh, we'll consider some of the context, I think, better in the sermon. So I'll just leave that for a way of uh, sort of a prelude to the reading of God's word. Well, Job, the second chapter, please give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came, every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads towards heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come to such a solemn text, Father, a solemn, sorrowful, and yet at the same time hopeful text. And so we pray, Lord, that you would enable your minister to preach this text faithfully, that the force of it and the the glory of it and the hope in it would come to the people of God. So give your Holy Spirit to uh, be in the preaching, Father that the man would preach up Christ, the very Redeemer that Job hoped in, and that Christ would be exalted in our midst. We pray for the people of God as they hear the word of God preached, that they would have open ears, a ready ear, and an open heart towards the Lord, that they would see, whether in loss or in gain, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be their great hope. So, Father, we pray in the preaching of the word that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in Job's first chapter last month, we saw that the poor man's trials just mounted one after another. A messenger comes, delivers bad news, and before the next messenger could even, uh, before he could finish, the next messenger comes and escalates the difficulty that the man faced. First, the loss of his servants, then his livestock, and then most of all, every single one of his children. Just one 
after another. The man doesn't get a respite. It just hits him blow after blow. And sometimes we saw that our trials are like that. We get them one after another. And we feel that we've been hit with a rapid fire progression and that we have been thrown into the bottom of a very deep pit of misery all at once. And at first, like Job did in chapter 1, we might refuse to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ, saying that the Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then you might think for a moment as you, you get your, your feet under you that the trial, the test has ended and, and that the Lord uh, will surely honor your faith. And you think I've come through the trial and surely the Lord said who has promised those that honor me, I will honor. And then you find that you are hit now with an even more severe trial. And you feel like you are in free fall once again, and you had thought you had hit rock bottom, but you discover that there is far, far further to fall. And with the deepening trials, the new temptation comes that might not have been there before. Something like this. What is the use? What is the use of serving Christ? Why? Do I bother if this is what my life is? Is this what the life of a servant of God is? One misery after the next. If my life is this miserable as a servant of Christ, maybe I should just renounce him and maybe I should just walk away from him. But once again, here in Job chapter 2, we find the mentality of the man who has been gripped with Christ, he tenaciously clings to his integrity, tenaciously clings to his faith, he tenaciously clings to Christ, and he refuses to let him go. And faith in Christ asks this very simple and poignant and profound question, what shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? This is such a clarifying question. It is the question you must ask your own soul and you must answer for yourself. It is really what separates you from bowing down before God and having God bow down before you as uh, Him becoming your servant. This is what truly testifies whether or not God is God to you or God serves you. If we evaluate the question correctly, in trials we would cling more tenaciously to Christ and refuse to let Him go no matter how deep the pit of affliction gets. And so with that, to introduce our theme and our time, our theme will be to hold fast to Christ in trials. Hold fast to Christ in trials. And we'll divide our time into three heads. First is Job's miserable condition. Second is Job's steadfast integrity. And third, Job's godly response. First, Job's miserable condition. And, and some recap, since it's been a while and some of you were not here. You see in chapter 1 that Satan had tried to get Job to curse God. This has been his aim. This is the contest here. To turn the most righteous and blameless man on the earth to turn him against his God. And his thesis, his thinking was this, that because God had so richly, richly blessed Job, Job solely reverences God because of all that God had blessed him with. Right? And so God put it before Satan. Totally unprovoked, right? God is the instigator, not Satan. God puts it before Satan and says, Satan, will you consider Job? No, I know that shocks some. But God, God was testing Job and he was refining Job in this. And he also shows his glory and his sovereignty over the devil and over all of us through it. He even shows that the devil is God's devil and is under his control. That all of our afflictions are really for the child of God from the hand of a good and merciful God. Every affliction. And his intentions are, as you will find throughout the book of Job, that all things work for our good, for those who love God. Even though the devil's intention simultaneously is that he would destroy us and devour us, his aim is wicked. But God uses the devil to 
establish holy ends. And we saw this was God's sovereignty and power and wisdom and goodness that can resolve such mysteries together in such a way that we would say what the devil meant for evil, God meant for our good. And as for Job in that first chapter, we discovered that Job did reverence God. Why? Because God was God to him. That even when God took all things from him, his first place, you remember this, the first place he goes is to worship God, to admit that thou art God alone. Even though Satan had tried to get Job to curse God by hitting Job where it really hurt, by having him believe first and foremost, or you remember this, that God had turned against him. You remember, these were not random occurrences, so, so to speak. They were purposefully designed by the devil to think that God had turned against Job. You remember, fire from heaven was sent to devour Job's livestock. What did that seem? That God was judging Job in that. And then a wind was sent to blow down the house his children were feasting in, killing them all, even though earlier, right, Job went to offer sacrifices day and night to them, knowing they were feasting, saying that my children might curse God in their hearts. And so what does the man think? He thinks that not God. They had cursed God and God had judged them and he had lost them eternally. The devil was preying on all uh, all of his fears, surely thinking that this would cause Job to curse God, thinking God had sent his children to hell. But what happened? Instead of cursing him, Job worshipped God and blessed his name. The Lord hath given and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But this was the contest, right? Job trying, uh, The devil trying to get Job to curse God to his face. So with that, for your remembrance, we pick up our second chapter. And we find, again, the great blessing that this book is to us, that we get to peer behind heaven's curtain, right? And we get to see what transpires in the heavenly counsel of God to gain infallible insight into the affliction of the righteous. This is our, our joy in the book. What we find in this chapter is Satan once again presenting himself before the Lord. And God interrogates Satan in that what? Satan knows his place before the Almighty. He presents himself to God. And God is doing the interrogation. He answers to God. He is God's devil. He hates God. He wishes God dead. But God is his master. And there is nothing Satan can ever do about that. And and there is nothing Satan can do which God does not give him permission to do. Now, as you consider Satan's own words... Uh, you'll discover what his activity on the earth is like. In verse 2, he said he had been going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. So remember, brethren, Satan is an active force. He's not just a force. He's an active person in this world, and you need to treat him that way. Peter, almost verbatim, brings to mind Satan's own words in 1 Peter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions, here's that word, afflictions and the devil, are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. That's an interesting parallel. He still is, in our day and age, seeking to afflict the brethren, even as Job was afflicted. He still seeks to devour. What you have to note are the ones that he most desires, right? He's not, he's not after the so-called devil worshipers, right? They are, already have the devil as their father. The ones he desires to deal with are those who are the most holy and the most righteous. In other words, if you will purpose to live for God, you will find Satan not too far behind, right there trying to make you curse God and die. And you ask, why are the afflictions of the righteous so many? It's because of this. And of course, the difference is that God has his own purpose in these afflictions. But the devil certainly is very interested in seeking out those who are closest and nearest to God, for he despises them greatly. You saw that in the garden, didn't you? And you saw that with Christ most of all. And what you gain from Job is an understanding of God's purpose for the devil, though. 
Because it is in this conversation in chapter 2 where you find that it was God who intended that Job's afflictions increase. That's a solemn and perhaps a sacred thought, believer. But it's also the very thought that consoles you in affliction, isn't it? Because it is God who is holiness and love and light, who afflicts his children and not willingly so, not for the sake of afflicting them, not to cause them pain as the end, though pain may be there in the middle, but for a holy and honorable purpose, for their sanctification and for the, to grow their trust in God and not in themselves and even to look forward to the resurrection day. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. 2 Corinthians 1.9 You see why the apostle, right? Here's another man so close and near to the Lord. And what does he say? We had the sentence of death in ourselves. Why? The great apostle, right, you might think this, might have the temptation to trust in his abilities, seeing thousands converted to Christ. But our trust should not be in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. You see, there's always a higher purpose for our affliction than the devil's. The devil wants to afflict us that we might curse the Almighty and go to our grave that way. But the Lord gives us the sentence of death at times that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raiseth the dead. God will bring us affliction that we might be refined and emerge, as Job will say later, as gold. With faith strengthened in Christ, with iniquities purged out of our heart, with our low thoughts of God erased as we abase ourselves and high thoughts of God emerge. And so while God uses devils and wicked men to afflict us, it is ever his hand that is in control of the affliction. Just as you think of this, boys and girls, as a good surgeon utilizes a painful searing laser or a scalpel to excise a cancer, the devil is an instrument, a terrible instrument in God's hands for our good. That's what we see in verse 3. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? You see this, he puts it in Satan's mind, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. God reminds the devil, with all of his work in chapter 1, Job still holds fast to his integrity, meaning that Job still had faith in the Lord, and he exercised righteousness and did not give in to cursing God and bitterness in the heart, even with this affliction. Though Job was virtually desolate, God says, and there was no cause in Job for Job's trial as a chastisement. God says that again, destroy him without cause. Job had committed no unrepentant sin, which warranted uh, God's displeasure. And I think that's revealed to us early in the book, so that when Job's friends needle him chapter after chapter after chapter with their orthodoxy, that we might wince with Job as they press him and push him to admit wrongdoing to feel the weight of their misdiagnosis as they add to the man's agony and sorrow. And if we ever consider Job's three friends in the future, we'll spend time on that, but we'll have to move on. So in response to God's words about Job and his integrity, the devil responds in verses 4 and 5, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Now, this expression, skin for skin, evidently it was an idiom or saying of the time. And I think we understand a little bit of it, perhaps, with our own expression, right? He will do anything to save his skin. Similar kind of thing. In essence, the devil is saying, you have yet, God, to hit him where it really hurts. It's funny, he's taken away all his children, and the devil says, you have yet to hit him where it hurts. You hit him without. You have hit him outside of his own life. But if you would only put forth your hand to touch his bone and his flesh, then he will curse you. Hit him from within. Plague his own life, not the lives of others, and then the man will turn. 
Then he will give up anything for his own skin, even you, God. And that's his thesis. That's the devil's thesis in a nutshell. But is that true, beloved? Does the godly man, does the godly woman give up God in such affliction? The devil thought so. He probably still thinks so. He doesn't seem to learn. Your flesh will scream at you to give up on God. And the world thinks it's the case as well. You know that as well as any. Why do these people follow Christ? Is their life really any better? But the devil, blinded once again with hatred against God, as you heard in chapter 1, does not understand why a godly man or woman in desolation tenaciously clings to Christ by faith. He is utterly flabbergasted by the psalmist who said, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Psalm 63, verse 3. Thy loving kindness is better than my own life. We sing, we pray, we say, God is better than my life, better than my skin, better than my health, better than anything else. Especially when we know the truth of Colossians 3, 4, that now, what is my life? Christ is our life. And that's really our life, not the skin and bones. In Luke, you recently heard Christ say that those who follow him must be willing to lose their life for his sake. That's the calling of the Christian. And the Christian wholeheartedly, though, at times it's difficult and the Spirit comes to help us, the Christian wholeheartedly embraces that equation. Christ is better than even my life. And this is something that undoubtedly baffles and flabbergasts the devil. It's something that flabbergasts the world. They don't understand the Christian in these things. Willing to give up their life, right? Rather than, why can't you just pinch a bit of incense and offer it to Caesar? Why give up your life for this God? Why give up your goods to government confiscation than deny Jesus? Why would you do this? The world and the devil are horribly wrong on this. They're astonished by this love for Christ and even horrified by it. Skin for skin, not at all when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer feels, as Job felt, as the psalmist felt, thy loving kindness is better than life. And when the burdens and the trials come, and they do come to the godly, you must remember that, Christian. It is Christ. It's his loving kindness, his covenant steadfastness, his commitment, as you heard this morning, to be our God and to take us to be his people. That is far better than your own life in the flesh. And that's where you must go in such times. Now, I also think often overlooked, and I overlooked it for many, uh, many years, is how breathtaking the devil's arrogance and bluster was in all this. You know, in the prior chapter, what did he said? He had said with such conviction, right? apparently. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, everything right outside of him. And he said, he will curse thee to thy face. It did not happen, did it? Even with Satan's best effort. But now what has he done, boys and girls? He's, as they say, moved the goalposts, hasn't he? Right? And often we don't, we don't pay attention to that without for a moment, not once admitting that he was in error concerning Job. He had made a declaration. You take all his stuff, God, and he will curse you. And Job instead blesses the name of the Lord. He doesn't say that he was wrong. No, he says, actually, you know what? There's his excuse as to why Job's trials failed to break him. You know, such pride when proven wrong is of the devil. That's a devilish thing, friend. Let us make sure to put that to death, lest we find the devil is our father. May we all humbly admit when we are proven wrong, especially by the word of God. Verse 6, the Lord gives Job up to the devil, and the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Note in this, the devil will never, ever have free reign over the child of God. Praise God. The devil, God said, could not take away Job's life. You cannot have his life, Satan. 
And so what you find here is that the Lord himself always has a definite prescription for persecution or affliction. They are designed, they are not random, and they are purposeful from his own hand. And that ought to greatly comfort you. No matter how severe they are, they are never made to destroy the faith of the child of God, as difficult as they are. And so in verse 7, the devil afflicts Job, and we gasp at his miserable condition. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. From the sole of his foot, the very bottom to his crown of his head, meaning the very, very tip top of his head, boys and girls, he was filled with painful and severe boils. Uh, These are filled with pus, as you know. His skin was on fire and was putrefying. And not a single point on his body, in other words, was without agony. There's not a single point where he could point to and say, this part at least is okay. It's all inflamed. Not a single part. You know, sometimes we have great aches in one part of our body and we feel like it's our end. Here, all of him, all of him is filled with fire. One minister of old said that the only part that was not filled with these sores was his tongue so that he could curse God by the devil's design. But every other part was filled with these painful boils that not only hurt, but were disgusting to look at, undoubtedly stank, they oozed pus, and they would also cause him, you think of all those who walk past him and see him, he would be a sight of horror, as though here is a man cursed by God. To himself, the sight of his own body and the stench of it, the pain he was under, it's unimaginable really to most of us. But whatever affliction you faced, you could probably multiply it by a thousand, and it still wouldn't approximate what he felt. In fact, he was unrecognizable. When his friends come near him, verse 12 says, they lifted up their eyes afar off and did not know him. They could not recognize him. And they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads towards heaven. Is this Job, who was once so strong and vibrant, our friend who was called the greatest man in the East, now reduced to oozing and putrefying, uh, a husk of a man, flesh and bones, more diseased than man. Moreover, his fingernails were so weakened like a leper's, and there, or, or there was just so much pus that he was unable to scratch at his own wounds that oozed. So he takes a broken piece of pottery to scratch at his body to find and hope for some relief from the inflamed skin he had. And maybe that's a picture of his own broken state, right? Job, a broken vessel, taking up a piece of broken clay to find some relief. Note his loneliness. He had no one there to scratch his skin. He did it himself. There was no one on earth to give him sympathy. He had lost his servants. He had lost all his children. You'll see, and you heard already, that he had lost his own wife, not to death, but lost her heart. Flesh of flesh, bone of bones, had now taken up the devil's mantra, skin for skin. And she had abandoned him as well. In chapter 19, when Job is pleading for mercy from his friends, he said, my breath is strange to my wife. She won't come near him. The woman called his helpmate was no longer a help for him, such that he had to scratch his own sores with no one to help. We think of our Savior in that too, right? Abandoned in his time of need by all his friends who deny him and run away from him. No one to help him in his own sorrows. We'll get to Christ a bit later. And where did Job go to sit as he staggered under the weight of all this? He sat on ashes, which was an outward sign that his soul was afflicted. Isaiah 58, 5, is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? His soul is afflicted. And after seeing the fire of God consume his animals, the wind that came to kill his children, And now this, to come under this, might you be very plain 
not be tempted to think that God had cursed you. And that the proper response might really be to curse the Almighty in return. Would you still cling to your faith? Or would you abandon Christ in the midst of all this? That's the question, isn't it? Would you walk away from him? Would you say with Jesus, or would Jesus say to you as he said to all those who abandoned him, will you walk away also? Will you go away also? The devil's calculation and the devil's aim is that you will for far less than what Job had. Well, I've put that before you to keep that in mind as we consider our second heading, which is Job's steadfast integrity. As has been the case with our prior sermon on Job, we have devoted most of our time to setting the scene and the theological framework. And so we'll go through these next two headings a bit quicker, though I trust we'll not be rushing through them. In response to Job's agony, Job's wife comes on the scene for the first time. Verse 9, then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. As though the wounds of his flesh were not severe enough. Now she who was his helpmeet, one flesh, right? By marriage, one flesh with the man. Now she hit him with another great blow. Go dig yourself a hole in the ground, Job, and take the name of God with you there. Why, pray me, are you still holding fast to your God and to your ways? Why are you still holding on to faith in the Lord after all this? What is underneath her question? It was the devil's own thinking. She's doing the work of the devil in this, isn't she? That God is only worth adoring and serving if he gives you good things. Right? But if God were to strip you of everything, strip you bare to skin and bones, he is unworthy to serve. That's what's at the bottom of this, right? Is that it, friends, for you? Is that the calculation you have made? The calculation of Malachi's day when they said, ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Malachi 3.14. What profit is it to serve God? That is the natural man's calculation. What can I get out of God? What will he do for me? Is that the game that you play, friend? To think that you follow God for profit. That if God does not keep me wealthy and healthy, then it is vain to serve God. That's essentially, after all this, why do you still hold fast to God is the question. All of this has come over you. Why are you serving him? Curse him and die. That makes you God. If that is your calculation, if it is all about God keeps me healthy and happy, then you are God and he exists to serve you. You need to put that unbelief out of your mind. You need to hold on to your integrity that God is worth serving. And really at the end of the day, right, this is enough. But he says, the one who refuses to serve God is the one who will lose everything, right? For what does it profit for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That was the devil's bargain from the beginning, wasn't it? Take the apple, have all things, and what do you read? Death comes into the world. You have the echoes of Eden really here in all that Satan tries with Job. As the apostle said, we are not unaware of his devices in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, the crux of the conflict is this. His wife's words, curse God and die. And you almost can imagine the devil hanging on her every word to see if this now would be the device that would finally cause Job to curse God to his face. But I think before we consider that, if you would read this in the Hebrew language, her words are even more jarring. Because literally she says, bless God and die. Bless God and die. 
And for various reasons when applied to God, the translators understand why in the Old Testament when God is the referent of a curse, the Holy, inspired, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the word bless instead of curse to serve as an euphemism when God is being referred to so that we don't have the words curse God in the Hebrew text. Because there are other words for curse and they're used throughout the scriptures. And it has been the case that in the book of Job thus far, when a curse is in view of God, the word bless, barak, is used instead of other Hebrew words. But with Job's wife, I think, if you read this in Hebrew and you read it in context, there seems to be an additional layer to her words that are very weighty, weighty indeed, that make them even more harmful than hearing curse God and die. You know, Job Right, You can imagine her in her heart or mind. Maybe she vocalized something like this. You know, Job, this God that you're always blessing, you know when he took all of my children away and you said what? Naked I came out of my mother's womb just like my children came out of my womb. And you said the Lord hath taken and the Lord hath given and the Lord hath taken away. What did you say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why don't you just bless God and die? That's really the sense you get of the text as you come here. You're always blessing God. He's taken my children. They've all died. Why don't you, and you could only say, bless God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You bless God. You die. This is why his breath was strange to his wife. You see, she had served God for all the wrong reasons. And you understand, right? You pity the woman in a sense. She bore all these children, but her faith was still misplaced or not in the right place, right? She didn't understand how a man could bless God and take away all his children, take away all his health. And at times, beloved, for the sake of serving the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ even said that he'd come to bring a sword. Satan will torment you with your closest loved ones as you resolve to serve God. And they will attack your faith in the Lord, but you must hold fast to your integrity. You must hold fast to Christ nevertheless. Soon Satan is going to attack Job through his dearest three friends as well. And sometimes our afflictions are heightened because they come from our spouse or they come from the church itself. And like Jacob, you say, all these things are against me. But you must continue to hold fast by faith to Christ. And in the end, isn't this what the Lord is teaching? Let wives, let husbands, let church friends, let everything else go, but keep Christ. Because that's really, at the end of the day, the only one who will never abandon me who will never forsake me, and who will never leave me. It is amazing. So many of you have found this to be true. How many of those who are nearest to you, maybe even a spouse, will abandon you as soon as you hold fast to Christ? I was just thinking, every time we are tempted to think Job's misery could not get worse, it does. In every possible way, it seems, his soul and body were tormented. And yet he retains, at least until now, his integrity, seen even in how he responded to his wife. Right? He responds to her railing without railing in return. He gives her a very mild rebuke, really. You see, beloved, this is a man who's holding fast to his integrity. Not even his affliction, not even these wounding words causes him to lose faith or deny a walk in godliness. Now, you really do, I don't think I even have to explain it all that much, find the shadow of our Savior right here being cast all over Job. Job's friends, when they saw him right at the end of the chapter, knew his grief was very great. And really, Job here, is a, we find that the shadow of the man of sorrows who is well acquainted with grief cast all over Job here. And you think of how Job suffered in the whole man, and we perceive a bit more of Christ's agony, both inward and outward sorrow, a whole man plunged into misery and torment, afflictions of soul, mind, and body, right? And this is exactly what Christ, our Savior, suffered. He suffered within, and he suffered without. Our Lord was even mocked, wasn't he, for his faith in God, even as Job was. The chief priests mocked him, saying, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. 
It's the same assault, isn't it, by Satan? And in a twist, of course, you know this, that uh, 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 the, the chief priests were just citing Psalm 22, verse 8, quoting the Psalm of the Cross, even as Christ is hanging there. These men who knew Scripture did not realize they were the fulfillment of it. What was that? He trusted in God. Let him deliver now if he will have him. What is that but bless God and die? In any case, the shadow of the cross is all out throughout this text, showing us how Job points us beyond himself and to Christ, his own Redeemer, who he knew lives. And yet, Christ, we have to think on this, suffered an affliction that Job never would. Job never will. You and I who believe never will either which is the wrath of God, which makes his agony far more profound and difficult to even imagine. Why did he do it? So that Job and all of you who believe will never experience that affliction. Yes, we are horrified by Job's misery, and yet aren't we often so unmoved by Christ? Christ who suffered hell for our sake to save us. And then you really ask the question, how could I ever curse Christ? How could I ever curse Christ to his face when he was made a curse for us on the tree? Cursed of God, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How is it that we cannot find the resolve to hold fast to Christ our Savior? Well, Job's full response to his wife deserves our attention for it is both wise and profound. So let's consider our final heading, Job's godly response. In verse 10, he responds to his wife's railing against him with, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. You know, what a profound question that he answered her with. You know, you and I are often willing to only receive good from the hand of God and not adversity and affliction. Why? Why is it if it comes from the same God, the God who is love, the God who is holy, the God who is righteous, whose every aim with his children is their good? Why are you unwilling? Why am I unwilling to receive adversity or evil as well as good from God? If we receive evil from God, is that the case then that he will cease to be your God? He says, my wife, you speak as a fool does. You speak as the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. The foolish women speak that way. And you need to mark that well, beloved. This is the talk of fools. It really is. And you also, I think, I think we don't ever note how great the gulf is between the good that he has given the Christian and the evil or adversity that he gives us, right? He gives us, what does he give us? And maybe our faith is too weak to even remember these things. Uh, He gives us eternal life by the hand or the agony of his own son's life. He gives us his son. He gives us Christ. And he is that which you will never ever say, the Lord hath taken away from me. That He will take away, and he's in his rights to take away all things, but he has promised the one thing he will not take from you is Christ himself. Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. You will never lose him. He will never forsake you, Right? And when Mary Magdalene, after Christ's death, said, they have taken away my Lord, he was not taken away at all from her. No, he promised, I am with you always. Right? He has never gone from the Christian, as you heard this morning. Believer, you have to see that Christ is your permanent possession. Why? Some of the greatest words ever heard by man from God say why. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight thirty-eight and 39. Are you persuaded, friend, that when you are stripped of everything, whether it is by death, or angels, or principalities, by powers, 
by things present, things to come, any other creature, Satan, in that mix, that nothing shall separate you from the love of God. Whether your, your body is covered from toe to the crown of your head with boils, whether uh, you lose all of your children, whether your wife or your husband say, bless God and die, in the midst of all that, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you still possess all things. You know, the devil knows that verse. He's had thousands of years, almost 2,000 years to fume about it, but he doesn't understand it at all. Not experimentally, right? Just like we see in James, right? The devils believe, but tremble. And he is going to do his best to make you forget that verse, believer, and that truth generally in your trials. And you have to ask and remind yourself, what is my affliction compared to Christ and having him? Say with the substitution in Job's words, shall we not receive Christ from the hand of God and shall we not receive evil when Christ has paid for all my sins and has reconciled me to God? You know, if you would just replace the word good there and replace it with Christ, I think it sets everything in its proper context. That will set your world aright. And ultimately, what is the point of Romans 8? It's not so much that your faith or mine has held onto Christ so well, but that Christ has always had a hold on you. He has said, no man, he has promised this, no man can snatch you out of his hand. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Well, the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 71 said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. So what do you learn in this chapter? Well, we've learned lessons throughout. I'm not going to rehash all of them. But we have learned, at the very least, our need to keep our faith in the Lord during our affliction. To remember, affliction is his right and his privilege as our God. And to know that he afflicts for our good that these trials of faith will show us, as Peter said in 1 Peter, uh, that our faith is genuine. And when our spouse spits in our face and says, bless God and die, we must rather be with the Lord than deny him for our wife or our husband. It is easy to be a fair-weather friend to God. It is very easy to be a fair-weather friend to God. Really, though, faith is proven in the furnace of affliction. Will you be on his side in hardship, toil, and trouble? And not in a superficial way, but to still bless him and to still follow him. Or will you ask, what use is it to serve God? As I mentioned, these trials are designed to prove the genuineness of your faith. First Peter 1, verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And you have to ask yourself the question, how unmerciful of a thing would it be of God if God has brought us to our deathbed without our faith being substantially challenged? But when you are tested in this life and you emerge from it by Christ's own help with your faith intact and you didn't curse God for all the loss in this life and all the agony and the pain, all the people who spat at you for following and serving the Lord, all the people that said if there was something to Christianity, you wouldn't be so afflicted all the time. After all of that, right, these will have its intended effects. So on the deathbed, you remember Peter's next words, whom having not seen, ye love in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. What an unmerciful thing it would be if God never tested our faith so rigorously. We wouldn't know our faith is genuine and assurance would surely be shaken. Be glad if faith draws out a response like Job's. He was commended for it. Verse 10, in all this did not Job sin with his lips. And so in the first two chapters especially, Job teaches the godly response. But what if you have been tested and found wanting? Or maybe you've been reluctant in your affliction. Well, your hope must never be, as you heard this morning, that you will endure trials perfectly 
right? Even with Job, cracks are appearing in his faith right as the next chapter begins. When Job skirts right around cursing God and instead he cursed his day, the day of his birth. But God had given the day of his birth. And so cracks were appearing in his faith and he's getting close and in effect de facto cursing God. And yet Job was saved. You see, it's not that Job's faith, my faith, your faith are perfect, but that our faith, weak and wavering as it is, is in the perfect one, the beloved Son of God. Faith, what it does weakly and with such sort of uh, 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 weakness, sometimes just clutches feebly at the hem of Christ's garment, right? As with that woman with the issue of blood. And it is that faith that the Lord said had saved her. And it's that faith that Job is having throughout this book that it seems, it seems so strong at first, but he is, he is desperately clinging by a thread to Christ. And it's that faith that still prays, Lord, increase our faith. We have faith, O Lord, but increase it. It's that kind of faith that saves. And so, may our faith fasten itself to Christ in our trials, never wavering, never letting Him go, and knowing the end that he intends for our trials. And may you ever say in your trials, what shall we receive Christ from the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? Amen. We'll leave Job there for now. Please rise for prayer if able. O Lord, our God. Uh, We thank you for this perfect word of God that has a word for us in every season of life. Whether we are at the Mount of Transfiguration, at the height of our joy with the Lord, or brought so low onto the ashes as Job was, and at every point in between, we bless you that there is a word from God to us, that Christ, who we hear in the scriptures, is speaking to us, and that he has come to minister to us. Lord, if any of us have made an idol of God by seeing him as a dispenser of good things and not in his prerogative to also give us affliction for our good, may we all repent of such things and thoughts. May our faith ever be strong in Christ and in our faith is weak. May we be moved to our knees in prayer saying, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Help us to remember that we don't come to praise Job But Christ, the man of sorrows well acquainted with grief, who suffered for us in our place, that we would never suffer as he did, that he would give us the blessing and joy of God. And now our afflictions are merely a joining in Christ's afflictions through union with him, that we get to know our Savior through them. We get to taste a bit of what he suffered for us, to reconcile us to God. Help us to see such things, Father, such holy and profound things in the word of God. Bless your people here with such uh, thoughts and meditations. We ask for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen.